Hey everyone, I'm Drew. And I'm Elijah. We're happy to introduce our new Think Truth podcast. So we launched the Think Truth blog in August of 2019 as a platform to encourage our people to think more and better about their beliefs. So now Elijah and I are starting this podcast as a more informal place to share our thoughts on culture and Christianity with you. We believe that there are lots of conversations we should be having that aren't happening yet. This podcast could change that. So today's episode is on the question, are we valuing the hard study of truth enough? Drew, one of the things that you and I have both noticed in our churches is the tendency to pit biblical study against hearing directly from God. How is it that we got to this place where hard study and personal revelation are almost seen as two opposing ideas? I think it's a reaction because we see people that read the scriptures, study them carefully, and yet they don't have lives that reflect meaningful reality. And for good reason, I think we're scared of becoming cold and dead, mm -hmm. um, knowing everything to say without having a life to back it up. And it's good that we're concerned about that. It is certainly good to desire a relationship with Christ that's personal and changes the heart. I think one of the reasons that conservative churches in America have gotten this allergy toward education and careful biblical study is the history of our Christian seminaries. If you think about it, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, these were all originally Christian seminaries that were started to train ministers to preach the gospel and today are just bastions of the left, really. Thinking about Dallas and Fuller, they were also very evangelical seminaries uh, only a hundred years ago that have gradually drifted towards liberalism. And I think it's fair to critique that trend, right? Yeah, definitely. And it's certainly true that a lot of seminaries went off the rails in the 20th century. I think we've all heard the joke. Yeah, I went to cemetery. I mean, seminary. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, I've heard that more times than I care to count. You probably have too. Uh -huh. um, I mean, it is fair to, to criticize specific seminaries that have a questionable record. But, I mean, don't you think too often the criticism um, is directed at the whole idea of education instead of specific institutions? I think it is. Yeah. We can't do this to ourselves to knock the foundation of solid theology right out from under us. Right. Now, we need to be careful, though, to not make being an intellectual something that's a prerequisite to being a Christian or, or a good Christian. That's true. Um, but at this point, we seem to be a bit behind because it's been so popular to um, warn about becoming too intellectual for decades. It's just become an easy way to get people to nod their heads. Right. And you certainly have seen times in history where academic excellence was valued above, say, practical living. But it, it doesn't really seem to be the issue that's at stake in most of our churches today. And it doesn't make sense to me to, to be decrying intellectualism in places where it just doesn't exist. Right. It seems to me that this problem is almost an early 1900s problem more than it's a 2000s problem. Right. And so I think for us today, we need to be hitting the problems where they actually are instead of mm. where they aren't. But the first disciples were poor people and somewhat ignorant. They didn't have seminary training. Um, they had a simple message of what they'd seen and heard about Jesus, and that's what they were preaching. So I think the nature of early Christianity tells us that obviously you don't have to be an intellectual to fit in. Certainly. And there's 
beauty in the gospel that it transcends barriers of you know class culture mm-hmm. and education it's not some kind of club for sophisticated academics and i think we rightly criticize anyone who tries to turn it into that and we have seen that happen in history um but again today it somewhat goes without saying we all know this and i think it's a good thing to point out that not all the early apostles were simple uh, low educated men Paul is the example of someone who is incredibly well-trained in, you could say, the, the best seminaries of the time, so to speak. You know, Paul's a great example of this because he, he brings balance to this discussion, I think, because it certainly is true that his education alone was not sufficient to put him on the right road, literally in this case. I mean, he's going to Damascus to persecute Christians, and then God has to stop him and wake him up to the reality that he's he's actually kicking against God. Um, so in that sense, we have to say that simply being educated, you know, as he had the top pharisaical education of the day, that itself wasn't enough. But it also isn't fair to say that then he just left all of that to follow Christ. I mean, yes, he left certain tenets of where he was for sure. Um, but you don't see someone that that leaves that and says, you know, hey, I'm just going to go follow Christ now. And, you know, just it's all about Christ. And, you know, when God opens a door, he closes a window. Wait, I didn't say that. <laughs> I, I literally just said when God opens a door, he closes a window. <laughs> yeah, that's not right either. It doesn't either. come out very well. No, um, but... Um, when God closes the door, he opens a window. Right, that's, supposed to be. Yeah. that's more how it works. Yeah, okay. but um, I think the idea there is that Paul was clearly still using his education and a very careful mind, even in writing the epistles. And when, when Paul says he counts all things as loss for, for Christ, um, it seems to be a comment more on his priority and the fact that his allegiance is in Christ, not that he's, say, trying to escape all elements of his past and his education. When you read the epistles, you, you just see the product of a man of towering intellect. And unlike Paul, much of the evangelical world today is just embarrassingly simple. The worst part about it, I think, is that people defend simplistic thinking by saying these sort of trite phrases like, God loves everyone regardless of their mental ability, or even repeating scriptures in a a certain way, like, Mm. we must become like children uh, to excuse simplistic thinking. It would seem that the average evangelical today, and I recognize that word can have several different meanings, but I include our people in it as well. Mm -hmm. The average evangelical is viewed as unscientific, simplistic, basically illogical. And the nasty truth is in many cases, they're right when they view us that way. And it's embarrassing. And, you know, it is not helping making, make us more accessible to the world to have this anti-education um, bent. It's just making us look foolish. That's for sure. Back to the verse, though, where Jesus says you must become like children. I think it's important to touch on that a bit because that is a verse that's used often to support this idea that God just wants us to think simply and any sort of deep intellectual thought is getting away from what God wants us to be as little children. In the last couple of centuries, Christians have taken this to mean that Jesus was rejecting good, solid intellectual thinking in general. So how should we be looking at this verse? 
I think it makes most sense to view the verse as making a statement on the state that our heart should be in, in seeking, reading the word and seeking to grow closer with Christ. Um, we see the, the faith that little children have um, in their parents and their ability to trust. And I think that's what that scripture is referring to. Um, not a kind of blind, naive, ignorance is bliss type of approach, which I think is how we're tempted to take it. But again, and just in context of the teachings of Jesus and the apostles, I don't think you can possibly say that Jesus is glorifying people that are just choosing to be willfully ignorant. That's right. And even Matthew 18, where it talks about this, it explicitly defines what being like a child is, which is being humble like a child. Right. So it's a state of, of the heart, not so much, not at all dumbing down our minds in order to be more like children. And I think a good verse to clearly show that that's not the tenor of the New Testament is in 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul writes, brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. Mm. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. Right. So it's this idea of you need to think deeply. Yes. What seems to have often replaced good thinking is what we could call emotionalism. So define that. What do we mean when we talk about emotionalism? Well, whenever you have a word that has an ism at the end, it's generally taking something to an extreme. So intellectualism would be taking um, the use of the intellect and glorifying it beyond reasonable utility. And of course, emotionalism is, is taking emotions and basing too much on them and um, weighing them too heavily in our, in our lives, I'd say. Um, obviously, there's nothing bad about feeling emotions, and yet emotionalism is going to tend to put experiences, especially sensationalistic um, experiences, and, and take, them, take them seriously in a way that isn't helpful. Um, so instead of simply experiencing vibrant emotions, which is something I think we all rightly um, look for, um, it's just an unbalanced pursuit of things that feel exciting. And so one of the problems with decrying intellectualism is that it leaves us with this unbalanced perspective. So if we aren't going to think, then it just kind of naturally is going to put us more towards feeling. Um, and when you hear someone say something like, we need to trust the spirit, not rely on our own thinking, it sounds spiritual, but again, I think when we come down to practical application, it's just going to mean that we're elevating feeling above thinking. I mean, obvi obviously we need to be both feeling and thinking, but if we give thinking a bad rap, then we're just naturally going to be more emotionally based. Exactly. But wouldn't you think that the biggest problem with emotionalism is just that our impressions begin to replace good study of scripture rather than that those impressions from the spirit are actually bad in themselves? I think so. Although I think we also have this idea that, you know, when you use that phrase, impressions from the spirit, when we hear that, we just kind of instinctively move in more of um, uh, just kind of a fuzzy feely type direction. We tend to think hearing from the spirit in more feeling terms instead of thinking. And of course, not to say that it's at the expense of feeling, but I I think perhaps we, we do well to to understand that that thinking plays a greater part in that process. In hearing from the spirit. Right. Right. What's the draw towards emotionalist thinking? Why do Christians so often find this sort of 
way of dealing with hearing from God attractive? We're lazy. I mean, that's part of it. Um, careful study is hard work. There's just no way around that. And there's times it's much easier to go around repeating the same predictable cliches about, you know, it's all about Christ or um, spirit told me this, just saying things like that. Um, again, not to say every time someone uses them that they aren't backed by reality. Of course, there are times that they are. Um, but it, it simply is easier to kind of stay in this cliched world than to actually develop um, on the ground reality. Right. Another part of it, I think, is this tendency to view all of scripture in light of emotionalist thinking so that we automatically come to those sorts of conclusions when we read it. So we can read a scripture like my sheep hear my voice, and we automatically think that that's referring to some sort of mystical feeling uh, that we have mm. instead of something more in the thinking category of uh, revelation as we study. Why is this so dangerous, though? Do you do you see that the mystical element of sensing the spirit in every in everyday life is actually something dangerous? Well, if we don't know, if we don't have a clear idea of what it means to be sensing the spirit, um, then potentially, yes. Um, obviously, if we are truly walking in the spirit, that's infinitely desirable. There's no no reason whatsoever why we wouldn't want to walk in the spirit. But that comes back to the whole question, like, how do we know when we are truly walking in the spirit? And if we have a mystical idea of that, that's divorced from a proper understanding of the word, and it's based on feelings, man, that's dangerous. Definitely. If speakers continue using these vague statements about hearing from the spirit without giving it clear scriptural definition of what it means to live out Christianity practically from scripture, people are really just left with their feelings to guide them. Mm. And I think for many young people, that turns out to just be living irresponsibly. Now, walk in the spirit is a phrase that speakers often use that comes straight from scripture. So how is it that something so true makes no difference for many people in the way they actually live life? Because I know people who totally agree we should walk in the spirit. They know how to rock worship music, hmm. but in their everyday life, they watch more movies than they read scripture. It seems like they're more excited about spike ball and Instagram than they are about biblical study. And it just seems that their Christianity is very half-hearted. Right. Um, when we use, again, when we use phrases like walk in the spirit, which as you said, is it's a biblical phrase. If we use it without an existing context, then it just isn't going to have um, the full meaning. I mean, obviously there's nothing wrong with the phrase walk in the spirit, um, but let's, if we think about the biblical context for the phrase, we see Paul telling the Galatians to walk in the spirit so that they don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. We see this kind of tension between the flesh and the spirit. And of course, today in the modern world, we want to focus on Paul's statement that when we walk in the spirit, we're no longer under the law. And again, of course, that's true, but we want, we tend to kind of glide right over the very explicit ways in which Paul indicates that this is directly at odds with her flesh. So biblically speaking, when we speak of walking in the spirit, we should be visualizing an active war against the desires of our flesh. That's how it's framed. So again, the biggest danger here is that feelings are going to replace thinking. We don't want it to be the case that people have experiences of sensing God's practical will for their day, and yet they don't know how to live free from porn or anger or fear. When we elevate this mystical sensing or feeling element 
and then we talk less about practically overcoming sin, it seems we've failed. One of my favorite quotes from Piper's book, Think, was when he quoted someone, another person actually, saying that biblical study and prayer are not these two opposing options, but they're two activities that are supposed to flow together. We're not supposed to either study coldly or pray fervently, but we're supposed to pray fervently as we are on Mm. our knees, studying deeply in scripture. And I think that's the right balance to have as we're talking about, do Mm. we sense God's practical will or do we focus on overcoming sin? Well, they're supposed to go together and we can't separate this feeling from thinking in a way that's unnatural and unhealthy. It's honestly a bit sad for me because there's such a deficit of people that are coming out and saying just what you said there. Um, Our churches really need to hear this um, and really make the connection between, again, the careful biblical study and prayer and overcoming temptation. Maybe maybe it's not so much that it isn't said, but that it doesn't really sink in. Um, It's just crazy to me. It just seems totally crazy that we have this idea that thinking carefully is going to have a conflict with feeling deeply because it's precisely the opposite. You know, I look at my life and the times when I have been able to feel most deeply and there are times when I've, God has enabled me to engage my mind to, to study and focus on his word. And that's when the most deep feelings come. There's just, there's not a dichotomy there. And if we make it, if we make one, we, we do so at our own peril. That's right. And we're right back to sort of a think truth motto, which is, Mm. We think more so that we can love more. They're not supposed to be things that are separated Mm. in an unnatural way. Part of the reason why some, at least in my church, have veered toward this emotionalist talk is that they're reacting to the law-oriented churches that they grew up in, where as long as you did what the church told you to do, you were an okay church member. They realized that they have to know God themselves and all the rules in the world couldn't make that happen. So they started praying more, really loving God, connecting with them. And now they're passionate to encourage people to actually know God, not just follow rules. But in doing this, they often tend to present this unnecessary dichotomy between knowing God and studying scripture. We want to reintroduce this truth, this study and prayer, good thinking, and the deep emotions that are supposed to come from that. They go together. They're not supposed to be opposed to one another. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the tendency in some of our churches that come from more of a law-oriented background um, to react to rules in that way. And some of that, I think, is just that we aren't thinking through things as carefully as we should be. Some of it is just, it's sometimes it's hard to move on to the next thing. You know, you hear people in churches that have come out of a more, say, rules-oriented background, and yet 20 years later, they're still kind of obsessed with pointing out that, you know, not everything's all about the law and, you know, we need to walk free in the spirit and which, which are true things. And yet we dare not get stuck. Um, we dare not get stuck repeating things that we, that we learned a long time ago. And that if we overemphasize, we're actually going to start to move in another direction. If you're going to a church that has no rules and everyone's really averse to having rules, if you keep saying, well, we need to make sure we don't have any rules and we just walk in the spirit, it's going to have an unbalanced perspective in the other direction, I think. Absolutely. It's a, it's a recipe for reaction that will become entirely unhelpful. It's also due to that laziness uh, that you were mentioning earlier. What do you mean when you say that our laziness tends to influence how we work with this tension of thinking versus feeling? 
if if we we have to think to know that we aren't thinking in the one sense because if we can be living lives where we aren't carefully thinking about anything and it really takes the the realization that we we need to sit down and value careful thinking to even realize to what extent we might not have been thinking and maybe that sounds kind of ironic and yet i really think there's something to that we need to come to a point initially where we say look thinking through this carefully while i'm praying while i'm reading the word while I'm seeking the guidance of the spirit is something valuable. And once, once we come to that point, I think that's when we'll come to most realized ways in which perhaps we haven't been thinking well. And we need to do that again, instead of beating this dead horse and repeating cliches about why we don't want to be legalistic. We, we just don't need to be regularly reminding ourselves of this though. I mean, at least I'm speaking for um, the churches that I'm most regularly in contact with, obviously, there still are churches out there for sure that are dealing with legalism. Um, yes. And perhaps perhaps we can still be dealing with it even as we try to decry it in some form. And yet we need, I just think we need to move beyond this. That's for sure. When we as Christians rely on these trite phrases about listening to the spirit without much definition, and we don't deeply go into scriptural exposition to describe what life in the spirit really is in terms of practical living, we're not accurately transmitting what it means to be a Christian. It's interesting that in Galatians, the letter that Paul talks the most about being spirit-led, he carefully defines what life in the spirit produces, like love, joy, peace, the fruits of the spirit, even down to the fact that spirit-led people shouldn't forget to support their church ministers. Paul put definition to his words about walking in the spirit. The last half of Ephesians is all about practical definition to what sorts of actions define Christians. So we need to be really careful to connect the dots between listening to the spirit and what it means to be a Christian in practical ways. And there's nothing law oriented about that. This marriage of thinking and feeling as we pursue Christ and seek his face, pray, read his word, there's something really beautiful about it. And I, I really hope that we can all be inspired and more excited about living, living our lives to the fullest where we are um, thinking so that we can feel more deeply. And again, I, I, if we're afraid of becoming stuffy and dead, I, I, I just have to say it's just not how this works. The stuffy, dead thinking we're afraid of comes from an absence of, of that heart directed towards God. It comes from an absence of the influence of the spirit. But if if we truly want to walk in the fullness of the spirit and live that vibrant life, we're going to be very much willing and prepared to think deeply. And we'll think deeply because we love the, the full reality of the spirit. It'll drive us to think more. It'll mm -hmm. drive us to study more. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for our next podcast when Elijah and I delve a little more specifically into how thinking can help us feel more deeply.